Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Returning to our show is Dr. Oliver Brooks, a past president of the National Medical Association, and we'll be discussing what's on the black ballot. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and also a past president of the National Medical Association. Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Lenore, as always, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you very much for having me back again. I really appreciate the request. Absolutely. So let's jump right into it. What is the latest on the coronavirus pandemic? The latest on the coronavirus pandemic is that it is burning through our country and the world. One quarter of all the cases are in the United States. There is a slight reduction in deaths. The restrictions are still in place. The virus is still circulating actively. And we are still having significant, serious health and economic repercussions based on the SARS-CoV-2 viral pandemic. Yeah, the numbers are pretty stark. uh, Over a million cases in this country, 205,000 deaths as of this morning, 21 states where the virus is uh, increasing both in terms of the numbers of people being hospitalized and the number of people who are dying. Uh, so there's no evidence that we've gained control of this virus. We're not even a second spike. We're in a dangerous first spike of getting ready to move into flu season. Right. And so we're still seeing those numbers grow up, which is still very concerning. I want to turn our attention to what we've been hearing about a lot in the news, which is, of course, the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Donald Trump's potential nominee to replace her. Dr. Brooks, tell us, what does a potential Supreme Court justice Amy Coney Barrett mean for African Americans? What it would mean there would be six conservative jurists on the Supreme Court. There is now a perspective that if we cannot get something legislated, we cannot get it through regulation, we will go for it through the court. When I reflect on the we, it is generally speaking the conservative movement in the United States. What this means, therefore, is something like the Affordable Care Act, which has been relentlessly attacked by the right. Provisions that control climate change, which are relentlessly on attack, may be uh, repealed. Climate change disproportionately affects African Americans. Employment, financial opportunity, there are laws that protect the country. Those are under relentless attack, and they may be overruled by this court. We do know abortion may be overruled and become a state-to-state decision. This is not directly affecting African Americans. It affects all Americans. So from any perspective, having uh, six conservative jurists on the Supreme 
Supreme Court would be and can be and likely will be devastating to African Americans. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with Dr. Brooks. I mean, I think there are two major issues uh, that result from her appointment. One, as he said, is the Affordable Care Act. The second is abortion. As far as the Affordable Care Act, uh, 20 million people are already uh, on the Affordable Care Act, and people will lose the opportunity, put their children on their insurance. So there's so much involved in that, especially in the pandemic when we don't know, A, how many people will continue to be sick, and what the residuals are, even for people who are asymptomatic, it's likely that many of them will have health-related problems um, after this is over and pre-existing conditions will not be guaranteed. As far as abortion is concerned, I think some people, sometimes the argument is too um, intellectual. I go back to a time when abortions were not legal, which meant you had a tremendous number of illegal abortions. Women with endometritis, unendometritis, dying in large numbers uh, and during these procedures, getting permanent infections, losing uh, their reproductive organs. And so consequently, uh, when you say Roe v. Wade, we're not putting a face on it. Uh, and I think that it was such a disastrous period before abortions became legal that I don't think anybody really wants to go there. But that's where we will go if she's appointed to justice. Well, I think it's safe to say that we all hope that that is uh not the case, although the prospect of that is looking uh, bleak, and it will be up to Democrats to respond to that in kind. But let's talk a little bit more about the Affordable Care Act. So we saw this in the debates last night. A majority of Americans that have been polled say that they actually support a Medicare for All platform. Joe Biden does not. Uh, his campaign has worked with the Sanders campaign to kind of meet in the middle on perhaps an expansion of the Affordable Care Act. What would health care look like? do we think, under a Biden administration? So that's an excellent question. I think what people need to really realize is, generally speaking, changes in health care happen incrementally with some large leaps or jumps, progressive moves or regressive moves in the interim. For example, Medicare in 1965 was a, a major leap. The Obama uh, care, Affordable Care Act in 2010, a major leap. You had pre-existing conditions now not being able to uh, rule out someone's or determine one's coverage. Coverage for children up to age 26, Medicaid expansion. Uh, uh, mandating an electronic health record. As physicians, I think that this one is major to us. The EHRs have changed the whole paradigm on how we practice medicine. Uh, minimum standards of coverage. So all those things are in place. So first of all, just thinking the reason why the public overwhelmingly uh, supports the Affordable Care Act is because all of those things make perfect sense. With the expansion of coverage, there can be even more. So you don't necessarily have to go to universal coverage, Medicare for all. If we keep moving incrementally the way we go, that in and of itself will be great. Under Biden, it's difficult to say. I mean, people use this term Medicare for all. That's a loaded term. That's a political term. The term that the NMA uses is universal coverage. So universal coverage is, is the implication is by some method, everyone is covered versus there's one umbrella that covers everyone. So under a Biden administration, I believe it would be more the former universal coverage 
as opposed to quote unquote Medicare for all. But both methods get to the same endpoint, which is everyone has health care coverage. Yes, I agree with Dr. Brooks. Uh, single payer options uh, are a term that most people don't understand. There are a whole variety of different ways to do single payer options, Medicare for all being one of them. I think one it's more likely to look like is a public option for those people who don't have the other alternatives. So you, those with, with private insurance that like their private insurance will uh, be able to maintain that insurance. But the, for those who don't have it, there will be a, a public option. Why are the Republicans trying to uh, eliminate it? One word, Obama. It has his name on it. It has his stamp on it. And they can't take that. But what they're doing is they're swimming upstream against the grain of the American people who understand the importance of not only the uh, issue of uh, universal coverage, not only the issue of pre-existing conditions, but minimum standards. But by that I mean Obamacare pretty much mandated that insurance companies, be they public or private, have minimum standards of care for uh, preventive health, uh, women's exams, and other things. So I think the Biden model will look will be more like a hybrid. It will not be single payer. It will probably be a public option with the with the uh, opportunity to maintain insurance if you like it. Well, I think it's safe to say which one would best benefit uh, African Americans and other minorities in this country. Speaking of African Americans in this country, I want to turn our attention to the debate that we all witnessed between uh, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. What can only be described, I mean, we've seen it on uh, news channels as a dumpster fire. CNN went so far as to call it, excuse my language, but a shit show. And even as far as, you know, a schoolyard uh, brawl. But what stands out most, despite all the interrupting and the arguing that happened last night, was that Donald Trump, given multiple opportunities, refused to denounce white supremacy. Instead, he told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by as African-Americans, as doctors, as people who have been around to see the effects of the civil rights movement. What's your reaction to that? Okay, so here's my perspective. First of all, the terminology used by the media outlets, I think, is somewhat unfair, not accurate. Donald Trump was being a bully, and the Joe Biden had to fight back. So it was disproportionately uh, determined by the way that uh, Donald Trump responded. He, in general, does not allow people to complete their words. He did the same thing with Chris Wallace last night. And I think the true Donald Trump was on clear display last night. That is who he is, and he's shown us that over three years and nine months. As it relates to him not denouncing white supremacy, he didn't even own up to the fact that there's structural racism in this country, and he said that we should not be teaching racial sensitivity uh, because it puts a negative light on the country, shows that clearly he is who he is. He is a racist. A. B, his base, or at least a large proportion of his base, 
is a racist. See, he has an election coming up in 33 days or so, and he needs his base. Therefore, he did not denounce white supremacy. He did not uh, admit to the fact that this is a racist society because, A, that's what he believes, and B, that's what his, or a large part of his base believes. So to me, quite frankly, it was not surprising. African Americans know a racist when they see one. And it is clear that he is one, and he just made it clear last night that that has not changed. Yeah, you know, I think I look at this somewhat differently. I think that he knew that he couldn't answer any of the questions that people ask him because he has no program and he has no knowledge of the programs that he does have. And I think by disrupting the whole process, making it look, uh, you know, basically uh, out of control, uh, he benefits from just the fact that, A, he did not have to try to answer questions, especially about health, because he has no health plan. Uh, Secondly, I think that what he did is he's trying to solidify his 40% because he feels that if he's got his 40% going, he may be able to pick off a few people in the middle, and that puts him at least in the controversial position of being a close election. So I think what he did, he did by, by design. He could not answer those questions. You ask him a question about health care, he doesn't know anything about health care. He doesn't know anything about racism. I don't even know whether he's truly a racist as much as he is an opportunist. And he sees that by taking his position, he captures a little bit of publicity. He solidifies a base. And when they go around asking these people in these places, well, why are you going to vote for Trump? They say, well, you know, because of his economy and he's a strong it's because he's white and they're white. And I think that's the thing that they're, that they're following. They don't care what his policies are. They just want him to be the defender and the last residual of white power in this country. But I think what he did last night was deliberate. I think he could not have answered those questions, even if he tried. Well, I definitely agree with that, um, for sure. And, you know, it would seem to me that the media, in many ways, is complicit in this. Uh, you know, we see Donald Trump often speaking about mail-in voting and how it's all fraud. And what nobody ever seems to question him about is the fact that the way he delivers this is that if Biden wins, there was mass voting fraud. But nobody ever asked him, well, what happens if you win? Was it mass voting fraud? And we see that the areas that they're targeting and uh, saying that there's going to be fraud are predominantly minority and African-American areas. That's where they want to dispute all these votes. And Which leads to this question, Dr. Zanana, and I want you to take your time with this one. Is racism a national health crisis? Yeah, well, clear answer is yes. And the reason why I say that is that First of all, there are studies that show that when you factor out income, insurance level, uh, education, uh, housing, that even with those all matched, African-Americans have worse health outcomes. There was a study that was done showing that black boys and white boys who grew up on the same block and went to the same schools had um, disparate income when they became adults by about 40%, the black boys being black young men, uh, showed less income. So race, race is race or racism. In fact, thank you for asking the question. It's not race, it's racism. It's not the, it's not the fact that someone's color of the skin, it's the fact that how that skin color is uh, responded to and how the structures that have been in place for 400 years lead to uh, there being racism 
and therefore just worse health outcomes. And there are a lot of reasons for it, but clearly it is a public health crisis and hence the need to address racism in and of itself, separate and distinct from what we know or call the social determinants of health. The answer is clear, yes. Uh, there's no question that racism uh, affects the health. Uh, it, it affects the immune system. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of the, uh, uh, what we call health equity issues, have to do with the pressure that racism puts on you physiologically. Uh, and so consequently, uh, is it a public health crisis? Uh, um, well, maybe not as much as when it was slavery. But certainly it, it involves a subtle factor that makes us as a people and almost any minority in this country uh, unhealthy. So with that said, on the subject of you know, African Americans in particular, on the right, the argument is always slavery ended, civil rights, first black president. The question always is, what else do you want? You know, we say that we have to address the social determinants of health. We have to address racism. What's the policy to do it? What else needs to be done to truly shift the paradigm on race in this country, not only socially, but also from a health standpoint? So, first of all, like I said earlier, it's going to be incremental. But we're not going to have put some legislation, some policy in place and everything, et cetera. Uh, racism, structural racism is part and parcel with the founding of this country, and it, it's there. So I don't, it, what is needed, first of all, as it relates to health, implicit bias training, which is the basic concept of teaching people to understand their biases that are subconscious. Uh, for health, we need more African-American physicians. Right now, one in 15 in the U.S. are uh, physicians. Uh, one out of 15 physicians are black versus one out of eight in the country are black. So we need more African-American physicians. Uh, and lastly, we need to address the social determinants of health. Again, as I stated, they will help us to get better outcomes, but that in and of itself is not the answer. So first of all, admitting to it, like the president was asked last night that he didn't admit to, and then addressing it data-driven and research-oriented Interventions and Yeah, well, you know, I, I look at it very differently. Um, I think we've been working from the top down to address racism as a health issue in this country for a long time. Healthy people 2005, 2010, 2015, 2020. The fact that African Americans are from the cradle of the grave, less healthy than the rest of America, has been no secret for a very, very long time. My feeling is that we have to start from the bottom up, that people, that African-Americans, uh, when they enter the healthcare system, need the tools that, uh, that they can use to get the most out of that system and to get good outcomes. Things like selecting a primary care doctor, things like asking questions, things like having an advocate when you go into the system. Those are the kinds of things that I think will make the system more responsive uh, to the, the need, the health needs, of African Americans. There's been a shift where we feel that uh, um, the larger majorities in this country now understand a little bit better because of these very graphic videos what African Americans are going through. There's somewhat of a, a guilt splurge uh, among corporations uh, and institutions to uh, appeal to the needs of African Americans uh, a little bit more for a while. 
But my belief is that after this pandemic passes and other things happen, we will revert back to seeing African Americans um, uh, uh, almost as unconscious part of our population, unrecognizable uh, part of our population. And then all of these guilt things will stop. And we still will have the same problems. Unless we start to develop our own institutions, unless we start to develop the tools that we need to effectively deal with the healthcare system so that it responds to us both as individuals and as groups, I don't think these statistics are going to change. They're not going to change from the top down until they start changing from the bottom up with us. With all that, knowing all that, the racism that happens in the country, the health inequity that happens in the country, African Americans did not show up in bulk in the last election as heavily as they had done in the prior two. Um, now, of course, you know there are reasons for that, and, and people will argue candidates and representation and things like that. But for this election, the stakes seem to be the highest they've been in a very long time. I ask you both, as doctors, what is your pitch to black voters about why they need to vote in this election? So, and I just pause because it's me as a black doctor, but more speaking just as a black man, that this is one opportunity where you can clearly have a direct effect on your life. The decisions that are made by congressmen and senators, local officials, and then at the national level, let's say your president, directly affect your health, your welfare. So the simple concept, the Affordable Care Act was the greatest change in health care in, what, 45 years. That came because you had a Democratic president who looked out for your interests. So you have a responsibility to vote. Number two is in this, I guess you've heard this over and over, but our people fought and died for the right to vote. So don't take it lightly. People died to allow you to vote, and they knew that it was important. So even if you don't figure it out, just assume the fact that your predecessors, your forefathers and foremothers understood the importance and just get off your duff and either check the proper boxes, put it in the mail, take that Tuesday and spend a couple hours. Like Michelle Obama said, if you have to bring a lunch and a book, Get in line and do it because you do this once every two or four years, and this is time well spent. Yeah, my messages would be exactly the same as Dr. Brooks. However, I think there are a couple of things that were at play in the last election. First of all, some people are just not going to go vote. they got to go to the store, the movie. They want to get up off the couch. I think too often we, we give uh, credence or we, we assign purpose uh, to the fact that Africans – a lot of African Americans don't vote. They just don't get up and vote. For no particular reason, they don't vote. Uh, and I think that this time they have to understand. Second thing I think is that we're not always politically um, astute. I mean, the object in this election is to defeat Trump. Now, I'd like for him to have, that for Biden have a black agenda and all of that. But I want Biden to beat Trump. Now, once Trump is defeated, then we can start to show up with all the agendas that we want everybody to have. 
We have to have a single objective this time to try to get a Democratic Senate, to try to get a Democratic House, and to try to beat Trump. And I think that has to be a single focus. And I do think that, you know, we can talk about who's going to get up and vote, but some people just, Jason, don't go to vote because they just got something else to do. Uh, but I think this is so important, and I think Trump has shown who he is and who he will be, that uh, I don't think we're going to have that problem this time. Right, and so we see a lot of initiatives right now, whether it's athletes, activists, people in government doing this big push to make a voting plan. We see people saying how you can vote, whether it's by mail, the actual ballot boxes, how you can register and all that. What we're not hearing a lot of people talk about, and what I'd like you two to you know, weigh in on is, what's the health plan for voting? How do you make sure you're staying safe from this pandemic while vote, while voting during it? The, the same way when you go in the um, supermarket or when you go in the Macy's if you're going in there, the three W's, wear a mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. So I expect that in an in-person polling site or voting site, you will stand in line six feet apart. You will have your mask. You will do whatever you do in terms of your voting. Then you will not touch your face and you will wash your hands. We, we have kind of figured out a lot about this virus. There's a lot we don't know, and Dr. Lenore spoke to it, but there's a lot we do know. And we do know that infection control works. I would say that if you have any doubt about the mailing aspect, just go vote in person. And I would not be fearful about getting COVID-19. I would do the appropriate measures and just vote. I mean, I think they're making this more, they're making this more complex than it is. It's not that we, we never heard all of this over the last hundred years, however long we've been back to the American voting for maybe 50 years, um, we never heard all this before, all the difficulty in voting. Now, it's true there is a pandemic, but there is mail-in voting, if you want to do it that way. And a way to do that, quite frankly, is you can take your ballot down to the polling station. If you're concerned about it getting mailed, walk down to the polling station and, and submit it in person. You don't have to vote in person, but you can submit your ballot in person or go on and vote in person or stick it in the mailbox. But my feeling is that if everyone does those one of those three things, and everyone, like Mike said, don't be lazy. I mean, he didn't put the word on it, but they're just lazy. You don't do it. Then this man will be defeated. And he's right. There's a singular focus right now. We have to get um, this incompetent man, as far as I can see, out of office. So you, you really have to register. And I think what Oliver says is correct. You, it, it's not that complicated. If you're interested in voting, uh, you can get the information that you need. And I'm sure there will be a lot of social distancing, uh, and I'm sure there will be a lot of safety issues involved in it. But I do think that the big issue is uh, let's get people, make sure people are registered and make sure people get to the polls. And I think once they get to the polls and leave a ballot, as they always have, I don't think we're going to have that problem this time. I think the truth to his credit, is so galvanized, uh, I think, minority groups. But I think he's going to have an awful lot of trouble. He's not even get close enough to contest the election. And I definitely hope that's the case. And so the last thing I'll ask both of you is, you know, we see this idea that he's I mean, it's not even an idea anymore. It's a fact. He has basically stated 
he will contest the results of the election. It, it seems that if a Biden win happens, no matter what the margin is, that he's going to contest it. There's this idea that he may not willfully leave office and there will not be a peaceful transition. And that he's stoked racism and uh, kind of galvanized these white supremacist groups to essentially wage this kind of civil war part two in the event that he does lose. And so many minorities, uh, African-Americans in particular, are kind of waiting around and bated breath and this kind of anxiety about what happens if he doesn't leave and his supporters suddenly are just let loose on our communities. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, my first thought is, first I want to emphasize what Dr. Lenore said, register to vote. I left that out. That is so important. You can't vote if you don't register. Don't think on November 3rd you show up, oh, well, I didn't register. No. So as it relates to what you just said, I, I honestly believe that that is somewhat overblown. I mean, ultimately, he can contest an election, but contest what? There has to be grounds to continue to say that I don't like outcomes. So I, I really believe that there is going to be less to contest than, than is stated. Uh, number two is if we all vote and there's a good turnout, there's nothing to contest. I mean, the margin of error will be such that no matter what, he loses. Uh, will his people come out and will there be some type of violent uh, upheaval? I don't believe so. Because ultimately, what would you do? I mean, if I really think about it, okay, I'm contesting the election, so now it's in Florida, so it's close. What would they do? Come out and do what? I mean, so I think that I think it's an idle threat. That being stated, I think that we need to be wary, and I think that we as individuals and as a community need to take a good look around us and just feel confident that on November 4th, you're okay. Yeah, we, we, we act like this, his, his constituents is some kind of real monstrous boogeyman. I know several brothers who would love to see these guys come out. Now, you know, I think that most of the uh, country would certainly disagree with him trying to stay in power. The military doesn't like him. The FBI doesn't like him. The CIA doesn't like him. The State Department doesn't like him. Um, and so consequently, who is going to keep him in power? So I don't think that's going to be the big issue. But to take it back to health, where we started, I think that people have to recognize that in this election, health is on the ballot. And that you, your health, the kinds of services that you receive, both in the public and private sector, are on the ballot. Abortion is on the ballot. And so if you can't get motivated by these other political things, it's too much politics for you, and I've seen African-Americans, on, pundits on TV, saying it's just too much politics. Then you better start thinking about what's going to happen to your mother and grandmother and what's going to happen to your children. And what, and what, what issues in health are on the ballot, I think, are just as important as any other issue, foreign policy, the environment, whatever. And you need, to, you need to be aware of that, and that should motivate you more than anything else to go vote. Well, I think you said that beautifully, and I think that's the perfect note to wrap up on. Dr. Brooks, I want to thank you so much for being a friend of the podcast, for being here speaking with us today. Well, I think, uh, you know, we've had a good spirited discussion. Dr. Brooks very knowledgeable about all aspects of this, having been the past president of the National Medical Association. He continues to serve our community in a variety of different capacities. So uh, thanks to you, Dr. Brooks. Thanks to those of you who continuously listen and subscribe to our podcast. And remember, health is your biggest asset, so protect it.
Well, thank you, Dr. Lenore and Dr. Brooks. Remember, Black Doctors Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media at Black Doctors Speak on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and on Twitter at Black Doc Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Everyone, please make sure you are registered to vote and that you do so. Take care.